we are looking at where is Jesus in the Old Testament. And I may go back and do something chronologically before the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Um, I just kind of got excited about talking about the Passover. And we've got a whole testament to do in, what, 13, 14 weeks at most. So I thought I should hit on some of the biggest, most important events. And this is one of the most important things in all of the Bible. Um, To talk about the Passover in Exodus 11 and Exodus 12 is to talk about something that is central and core for the Jews. Um, the, The heart of the Jewish religion, part of one of the biggest things that sort of forms them as a people is this idea of Passover and, and, and what it means to them as a people, as a nation. Similarly, for Christians, the thing that Jesus initiated on the night he was betrayed, the Last Supper, he calls um, the new Passover. And so it's a central event, the Passover, for Jews and for Christians. So if you want to be at all educated, you should understand what the Passover is about. Not only that, it's one of the most beautiful pictures about the true Lamb of God who has come to die in our place that we might have rich fellowship with our God. So it's a beautiful picture to gaze upon Jesus, the true Lamb of God. So we're going to read Exodus 11 and 12. I know that uh, that's a lot of scripture, but it's a great story. It's one of the best stories ever told. So it's worth reading. Exodus chapter 11. Now the Lord, now this is the end of these plagues. You remember where we left off last time, God had told Abraham that he would make of his descendants a great nation. One of the other things he told Abraham is that eventually your descendants are going to go into Egypt. And in Egypt, they are going to be enslaved for 400 years. But then I'm going to bring them out and bring them into this promised land. So now we're jumping ahead in the story of Israel in the Old Testament to the point at which Egypt has enslaved God's people. Israel, the nation of Israel, is there as slaves in Egypt. You know this story, right? And God has sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses time and time again. And so the Lord sends these plagues, ten plagues. Well, actually, where we're picking up the story, there's nine of them that have happened And still Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go and take their herds and their flocks with them so that they can worship God as God has made them to worship. And so we come now to the final plague and what it means. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does... He will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, the I meaning God himself. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave, an Israelite, 
who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a bark will bark, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. This is God speaking. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. About in these chapters in Exodus, half the time it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, half the time it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's both both things going on there. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then he goes on and talks about um, some more things about how they are to celebrate it, right? And then go down to verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, 
observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who is in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sobering passage and it's a strange story. But it's your story, a story that you wanted commemorated every year, a story that you designed to provoke questions even from children. And it's the story you have for us tonight. May you be pleased to help us to understand this story and even more importantly, to see you and your goodness and your grace through this story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the first thing to get from this story is there's a serious problem. There's a serious problem. God has been building to this plague. This plague, even though I started in chapter 11, it doesn't just come out of the blue. God's people have been enslaved. But as you go through the story of the ten plagues, one of the themes that comes out is it's not just enough for Israel to be delivered from slavery. God has a bigger purpose in mind. And you see it in this passage. It's not enough merely for them to be set free. God wants them to be free to worship Him. But the only the, the, the barrier to worshiping him is twofold. It's not just that they're enslaved in Egypt, though that's a significant barrier to worshiping God as he has told them to worship. They also have the problem of their own sin. And both of these are big problems. You might say, well, where do you see this? And here's where you see it. The fact is, God had been telling Israel, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. Even back in chapter 4, God said, Pharaoh is not going to listen. I'm going to send these plagues. He's not going to listen. He's going to harden his heart. And then I'm going to slay the firstborn. And then he's going to let you go. That was way back in chapter 4. So you do not need to picture, you should not picture these plagues as God continually wringing his hands, trying to figure out what is it going to take for the Egyptians to let Israel go. God has known from the beginning that it was going to take the slaying of the firstborn. And here's what you need to understand. In the ancient world that the Bible is, it comes to us from, it wasn't unusual for gods to demand the firstborn. We saw this last week, right, in the story with Abraham. And I said, you know, one of the intriguing things about the story with Abraham is that God reveals himself as different than the other gods. He's not a God who says, if you perform, 
just, what, just right, then I will love you. He's a God who comes and says, the relationship I'm going to establish with you is not based upon you doing your part and me doing your part. And I'm going to show you this, Abraham. I'm going to put you into a deep sleep, and I'm going to walk through those animal pieces by myself in a, in a way that Abraham didn't expect. Okay, And then, at the end of the story of Abraham, God tells Abraham something that makes Abraham go, oh, okay, I knew it. You really are like all the other gods. God says to Abraham that you need to sacrifice your firstborn son, Isaac. And, and Abraham doesn't complain about it because in his day, this is what the gods did. They regularly demanded your firstborn as a sacrifice for your sins. One of the hard things about us understanding the Bible is we come from a very different culture. In our culture, you get what you pay for. It's a very individualistic culture where you're responsible for what you do, but you don't bear any responsibility for what your parents do or what your children do. Well, it's not quite true. Uh, if, if your children do certain things, you end up having to pay for it. Or if you have you know, a dog you know, that bites somebody's leg off, you get in trouble. I mean, there's some, there's some places where there's connections, but for the most part, we think of, I get what I deserve. But in the Old, in the old Testament culture, um, families mattered more than individuals. And it wasn't unusual for a family to realize that to pay their debt, their sin, it was appropriate for the gods to demand the firstborn. So there, there's, a, there's a sense in which everybody would have expected that if Pharaoh sinned, that his son would pay for it. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that's the expectation. There's this understanding that if you have a debt, if your family has a debt, your firstborn may have to pay for it. Okay, But yet God, in the story of Abraham, shows that I am not like those other gods. While the firstborn deserves to die just like the father deserves to die, I'm going to provide a sacrifice to substitute in the place of the one who deserves to die. And he's still teaching that through this story. He, what he's saying through this story, see, what's new in chapter 11 is not the idea that the firstborn is going to die. What's new is that Israel has to be covered or even Israel's firstborn would die. Which means it's not just Egypt that has a sin problem. God's people are being forced to realize that they have a serious problem too. It's not just that they're in slavery to Egypt. Egypt is a serious threat to God's promise that he would bring the seed of the woman, the Messiah, one day to crush the head of the serpent. But Israel's sin is also a serious obstacle to that happening. And what you see in this story is that God is both going to deliver his people from Egypt, but he's also going to point the way to how he's going to deal with the other serious problem. You see, God is not interested in just delivering them from Egypt to be a people. He wants them to worship him, and he wants to fellowship with them, rich fellowship, signified by eating a meal together. And for that to happen, they need to not only get out of Egypt, they need to have their sin covered so that they can sit down and fellowship over a meal with their God. 
So the Bible is going to be saying this over and over and over again. God created man not just to do his bidding, not just to live the way he called him to live, but to live in relationship, rich relationship with him. And you see it here. It's not just enough that Israel is delivered out of Egypt. They also need to be set free to worship. And for that to happen, their sin needs to be dealt with. Right? And so we see that God is going to deal with this problem. And in doing that, he gives us a powerful picture, a deliverance. Now you see this. What's so interesting is the plague, the 10th plague, gets them out of Egypt. Right? And the blood smeared on the doorposts covers Israel's sin so that their firstborn won't die. But why the meal? Why the meal? Why all the specific instructions about how to prepare this lamb and how to eat it, even to the point of the kind of details of make sure that you calculate how much is going to be eaten If you don't have enough people in your family for a whole lamb, well, then get together with another family because it's important that the whole lamb be eaten. And if part of it isn't eaten, you need to burn it up so that none of it is left. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff in this story, a lot of big stuff that God's doing, but there's more verses devoted to all these nitpicky details about how they're to eat this meal than to all sort of the kinds of stuff that you would put in a Hollywood movie. And I don't know if I've ever seen a depiction of this on the screen that has the balance right, right? I mean, who wants, to, who wants to shoot like, you know, an hour of the ceremony of the Passover lamb and then spend like 15 minutes, you know, on the slaying of the firstborn and the parting of the sea and them getting it? No, nobody does it that way. But that's what the story is. There's more, devoted, more time devoted to the details about the meal. What's the point of the meal? I mean, God didn't actually even need the the blood on the doorpost. He knew where the Israelites lived. And he doesn't doesn't need this meal for them. In some ways, it seems like, wouldn't it be better for them to be ready and packed? I mean, you know, I don't know if, if, you know, when you go, maybe you don't, when you have kids, you'll understand this better. When you're getting ready to go away for a long time, you tend to not make a big meal with elaborate preparations, just as you're about to leave. And it's bizarre. They're supposed to eat this meal with their cloak tucked. That means they're getting ready to run. Because, you know, they would have, the skirts would go all the way down to the ground, and you couldn't run in those kind of outfits. So what you would do if you were getting ready to run, you would gird up your loins, they say. You would take the skirt, you would sort of pull it up, you would tuck it into your belt so that you could run. So that's the picture. They're to have their sandals on, they're to, they're to be ready to run. It's bizarre, isn't it? What's the deal with the meal? I think the meal is pointing to the fact that God has always wanted more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card for his people. The point of this picture is not just that God is going to forgive your sin through the substitute, this lamb. The picture is God wants to eat with you. God wants to eat with you. Don't you hate sitting in the cafeteria by yourself and wondering if somebody's going to come over and sit at your table. I mean, I hate going to the cafeteria. You know, what if I don't see anybody I'll know? You know, and I've got a, you know, a wife and kids who love me. So at least I know I'm going to get a hug every day, you know. <laughs> but what's it like? I mean, but here's the astounding truth of the gospel. 
The, the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, wants to eat with you. Let that sink into your heart. He doesn't just want to use you to build his kingdom. He wants to eat with you. He wants to take his time and sit down and eat with you. Do you believe that? If you grew up in church, you probably hear a lot about how you need to ask Jesus into your heart so your sins get forgiven. But how often do you hear about, you know, God just wants to eat with you. And dealing with your sin is a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. The goal of the gospel is not just to make you not guilty. It's so that you can eat with God and fellowship in the richest of ways with him. Right? Now, it's fascinating. The destroyer, you see, if if you read this passage carefully, is God himself. And so he's giving his people this picture of blood needing to cover them so that his wrath would not come to them so that they could sit inside with death all around and they could be sitting down eating with him. What a picture of what God's people are about. There's death and dying all around But God has made a provision so that his people can sit down and eat with him in the midst of that. Does that stir your heart? It's what you were made for. It's what I was made for. But how is it going to happen? 1 Peter 2, verse 6 says that all of our spiritual sacrifices are made acceptable through Jesus Christ. In other words, you know, you may think that the one thing that you can do that God is surely going to be pleased with is worship. The Bible says your worship is only acceptable because it's covered by Jesus and what he did. And that's what God is showing us here. Do you see substitutionary death is at the heart of this passage? I love the very last verse of chapter 12. It says, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Did you get that? There's someone dead in every house. Either the firstborn or a lamb. But there's someone dead in every single house. Do you see, like... The story couldn't be told any more clear. It's about substitution. Somebody has to die in every house. And someone did die in every house. The only way to avoid death is if something dies in your place. That's the heart of what God is teaching us in this passage God has the right to the firstborn because every one has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God is providing a way, providing a way that death would not come to you, but death has to come to your house. Something has to die. 
And look at the way the meal teaches this point about substitution. See, I think that's the point of all this, all this, these picky details about the entire lamb needs to be consumed. And there needs to be, as far as is possible with you, a one-to-one correspondence between the people and the lamb. You need to figure out how much everybody's going to eat because you need to eat every bit of it. And what you don't eat needs to be burned up because it needs to be as, be as fully engulfed as the wrath of God should be engulfing you. One-to-one correspondence. And then we see something else that's so amazing here. After this death comes either to your house or to your substitute in your place, everything's different. Look at the way this talks about. I mean, did this detail strike you as strange in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2? Like he's talking about what's going to happen to get you out of Egypt, and all of a sudden he's talking about the calendar. The calendar. Like, where does that come from? But here's the point. This night is the beginning of a whole new life. Look at this, verse 2 of chapter 12. This month is to be set for you the first month, the first month of your year. The calendar starts over. It's like you were born again on this night when death came to your house and consumed the substitute in your place. Life begins for you. You see that picture? Life begins with the death of a substitute in your place. That's the heart of the gospel, guys. And God says this isn't just enough for you for this to happen and then for you to tell the story over and over again. No, I want to set it up in a way that you're going to have to go through this again and again and again. I want this story so built into the life of your community that your children are going to ask you, why do we do this weird thing? I mean, why do we eat bitter herbs? Do you know why they eat bitter herbs? To remind them of the bitter years of slavery that they were in Egypt. Why do they eat this lamb? Because they need to understand that the key to God's deliverance was a substitute dying in their place. Why do they need to eat it in haste? Because the Lord is setting them free, but he's setting them free to go on a pilgrimage. Because the Christian life, life with God is not just about staying in the house and eating all the time. It's about eating with your shoes on and your cloak tucked in because he's got stuff he wants you to do. But it starts with substitution, the calendar beginning right then and there, and then eating a meal, rich fellowship. And out of that, God calls us to go. So we see a beautiful picture of deliverance. We also have here a sobering call to faith. The thing that's really interesting is, um, try to imagine this. They talk about the sounds, loud wailing such as never been heard. So can you try to picture what that scene is like? It's not like they have sound machines. It's not like they have insulation. They're sitting, you know, they're sitting in these really poorly constructed little buildings. These are slave cottages after all. They're not in the mansions, the the Israelites. They're hearing death all around them, loud wailing, but they're safe eating 
a meal with death all around. Now, I submit to you, that's a, that's a really powerful picture of the way we should think about ourselves if we're God's people. There's death and dying all around. But God has called us to feast with him even in the midst of death and dying all around. And it doesn't mean that you just sort of block it out. Like being a Christian is not sort of putting your fingers in your ears to all the hurt of the world so that you can just sort of have your little holy huddle. And yet there is a place of refuge with God in the midst of the brokenness all around. Right? But here's what's interesting about this 10th plague. All of the other plagues, all of the other plagues, Israel didn't have to do anything. In the first nine plagues, Israel doesn't have to do anything. But in this plague, they have to do something with the blood. And so the Lord is teaching, while it's his work, there's still a need for them to exercise faith. They need to put their faith in the provision of the blood if they would be spared. And I would say that that is, again, a picture of Jesus and of what the Bible says over and over again about the gospel. It's not enough for you to admire Jesus. It's not enough for you to think, boy, he's a pretty good guy. I think he, you know, taught a lot of really cool things. I think he did some really noble things. He does a lot of weird stuff that I don't know what to think of. Says some weird stuff I don't like. But for the most part, I think he's a pretty cool guy. You know, like the doobie saying, Jesus is just all right with me. That's not enough. The Bible says you need to put your faith in his blood as the provision. And we see that in this picture here. Again, you know, God knows where they live. He doesn't need the blood. He doesn't need the blood to know where they live. But they need the blood. And they need to put the blood on their doorposts because they need to have a tangible experience of trusting in the provision of the blood. And what does God say? He doesn't say, when I see you, I will pass over. When I see you, my Israelite, I will pass over. No, he says, when I see the blood. Israel is directed to this idea, like God taking him by the hand and say, look, here's the point. You have to put your trust in the blood. I will see the blood and I will pass over, right? And then he sets it up to be a thing that they're going to do over and over again so that the children will ask questions. I love that. How often, how often does our living of the Christian life provoke questions and intrigue? It should. I think it should be one of your goals if you're a Christian is to not fit into the little boxes that people try to put you in. I, I think, you know, at a place like Belmont, almost everybody has been exposed to Christians. There was a book came out a few years ago called Unchristian, which are basically, you know, some pretty intense surveys of people between the ages of mid-20s to mid-30s who would say, I am not a Christian. I would say, I identify myself as somebody who's not a Christian. And then they did these surveys of, about all kinds of sort of things. One of the fascinating results that comes out of that book is that most people who would say that they are not Christians in our culture, your friends, your age, 
would say that they've had significant contact with Christians. Do you know what that means? It means that we can't flatter ourselves and say, you know what, the reason that those people aren't Christians is they just don't know us. If they knew us, things would be different. No, actually just the opposite. They know us. And that's one of the biggest barriers to faith. Now, I say us. I, I don't you know, imagine that everybody here is at the same place spiritually. But I'm saying, you know, if you consider yourself a Christian, understand that people think they understand who you are and why you think the way you think. And I suspect that they've got that wrong in some ways. What, what does it mean to be the kind of people and to live in the kind of way that provokes questions? Why do you do that? That's so interesting. You're a Christian, but you actually think about things. You actually question things. You actually listen to me and what I think. Why is that? Because I've never met a Christian like that. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Faith and questions go hand and hand. So we see this kind of symbolism. We also have an invitation here. And this is where, where we're going to conclude here tonight. God gives us an invitation to behold the Lamb and adore him. We need to gaze upon Jesus as he's pictured in this feast. I mean, here's, here's the point of what I've been saying tonight. Listen to this. God called his people to celebrate the Passover meal every year. Why? So that they would remember God's faithfulness in the past, but also to remind them that even now, even today, even as we celebrate this meal today, we're to remember that God wants to eat a meal with his people. So every year as the Israelites celebrated this, they were to remember God's faithfulness and delivering them from slavery. They were to be reminded that his ultimate goal was not just to deliver them, but to sit down and to eat with them, to fellowship with them. And they are to, it is to increase their hunger for the true Lamb of God that was to come. It was to point them to the fact that God was committed to providing what was needed for them to share the true marriage supper of the Lamb that one day was to come. See, in the sacrifice of the Passover, God is teaching them about what he's committed to provide. Not just so that the barrier of Egyptian slavery would be removed, but so the barrier of their sin would be removed so that he could be with them forever. They see the commitment, and we see the commitment of God who would rather die than live without us. Do you believe that, or do you believe that God sort of grudgingly accepts you because he sort of made this offer of the gospel, and now he's stuck with it? I don't know, but sometimes I've thought that, you know. I don't know what God was thinking when he offered the gospel to all these people. I'm sure most of them get on his nerves, namely me. No, what we see every time this story is celebrated is that God wants to eat with us. And I don't care how many people, you know, don't want to eat with you. God wants to eat with you. And notice this, one other thing we see here, that God is the God who comes to the rescue when all else see, seems lost. Now, how do you see that in this picture? Well, it says here that after, after, God, after you know, the ninth plague, in the, in the story of the plagues, after the ninth plague, Moses like storms out. It, it looks like all is lost. 
It looks like all is lost. And then God says, now's the time. God says, now's the time for my people to be born again. I'm about to do something so significant now. Now that Pharaoh has hardened his heart, now's the time for me to be doing something so earth-shattering that the calendar itself is going to change. Nothing will be the same after this. Do you, do, you, do you think about what Jesus did as the hinge pin upon which all of reality turns? All of reality, not just your reality. The death of Christ changed everything. Do we live like that? God comes to the rescue when all seems lost. And I don't know, you know what your week has been like. I don't know what your year has been like. I don't know what your life has been like. But I know that you need to hear this message. That when all seems lost, God comes to the rescue. Because God will not back down from his commitment to rescue a people for himself. Not just so he can say, yep, look what I did. But so that he can fellowship with them and eat with them. And enjoy them. Do you know that God wants to enjoy you? I heard Tony Campolo say one time that God is like a Jewish grandmother. He's always like, you know, wanting to show off pictures of his kids to the angels. And they're just like sick of it. And I've always loved that. Love that picture. Maybe you've got a grandmother like that, you know. I hope you do. There's something really important about the nature of God that you can only learn from a grandmother like that. Right? Because I think it's hard for us to get our hearts around that idea. But this is a beautiful picture for that. And then one other thing that I'll say is that this is a meal for pilgrims. And again, I think, you know, one of the things, like, it's hard sometimes, you know, sometimes we get sort of out of kilter. Either we want to focus so much on what God has done and just enjoying that and taking it in, or we want to just focus on what we're supposed to do. So I love like the way that both of those ideas are brought together in this story, that they're to eat this meal in haste, dressed like pilgrims who are ready to go. Because do you realize that the Bible says in the New Testament to live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear? The idea that this idea of, you know, we think of the pilgrims, right, as the guys who invented Thanksgiving, though they didn't. It was something done even in the old world before they came to America. But that aside... You're to think of yourself as a pilgrim, as a pilgrim, as somebody who is on a journey. And God has, has, has equipped you and sent you somewhere. They're to eat it standing up and ready to go. And so are we to think of whenever we fellowship with God, it's not just about resting. It's also about being sent out. Because there's a whole lot of other people that need to know about a God who would rather die than live without them. And a God who's committed to sitting down and feasting with them at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you know that that's true, don't you want to share that? Why would we want to keep that to ourselves? Right? So gaze upon this. Gaze upon this picture. The Lamb has died in the place of sinners so that they can feast with God forever.
What a beautiful picture. Let's pray together.